Hi everyone, you're listening to the EFG podcast, Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And uh, today we have our quarterly special insight, quarterly market review uh, podcast and uh, for those of you who like to follow as uh, as you listen uh, please click into the uh, the EFG website or the LinkedIn or the uh, other social media channels we have uh, and just click into a little icon on the uh, Insight Quarterly Market Review which you can just click into and uh, you know fo- follow along uh, so uh, please do that and of course as always uh, give us uh, feedback we always uh, looking to improve if we can on our on our delivery and this kind of dual you know written and um, and listen to uh, podcast so as normal i have our a macro team a team macro team uh with me and uh, and obviously our special guest uh, paul temerton so paul thank you welcome and then we have of course daniel murray Gianluigi Mandrazato and of course Joaquin Tall and we'll go through the various sections uh, together. So first of all um, uh, we'll quickly do the overview uh, and uh, maybe have a quick conversation with Paul to go through uh, the overview itself. So the big question certainly we've been asking ourselves over the last quarter is China and indeed a few years ago we, we talked about this US-China and whether China would overtake us uh, in GDP terms, but clearly things have changed on that front. Uh, so, uh, Paul, uh, maybe you can enlighten us. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, so it takes me back to when I was little and uh, the Sputnik moment. And the Sputnik moment was when people feared Russian dominance. And if you go back to 1961, Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Samuelson had a very famous chart in his book saying that Russia would overtake the US in terms of the level of uh, income per head and also overall GDP by the early 1980s. And he <laughs> thought at the time it was a great idea to have a planned economy. That was considered a real, real benefit. And of course, it didn't happen. And if you look today, Russia's GDP is about a fifth of the US. And even on some generous calculations, income per head is only a half of the US. And then probably less well known is the period in 1979 when a Harvard economist called Ezra Vogel um, published a book called Japan as Number One and said that because the Japanese were so industrious, so hardworking, had got sort of management techniques off to a T and everyone else would have to copy them, it would become the world's largest economy sort of quite soon, by the mid-19... Uh, by, by, as soon as the mid, uh, mid to late 1980s. And that didn't happen either. Uh, Japan's GDP is around two-thirds of the US level and overall GDP about a quarter of the uh, US level. So what that made me think was, okay, we've all been talking about China becoming number one and overtaking the US, but are we going to make the same mistake as we did when looking at Russia uh, and looking at Japan in the past? So I looked at when we'd first projected, this is EFG Asset Management, had first projected that China would overtake the US, and we said it would do so in 2020. And that was right in terms of purchasing power parity. It's bigger. So our forecast was correct. I was very <laughs> pleased to sort of realise that. But of course, income per head in China is still way, way behind the sort of US. And now we think, is it, a, is it another error, the same sort of error that Paul Samuelson made when looking... Uh, at Russia, thinking that an essentially state-planned economy can overtake a dynamic, private sector-driven entrepreneurial economy like the US. And I find people are coming out with two main arguments. One, China, with all of its new controls, is looking like the Maoist sort of China with lots of missteps in economic control and really making a serious mistake. That's argument number one. Uh, the second is, but maybe they're doing just what 
anyone can, should be expected to do if anti-competitive practices have run away with themselves and people are making too much money and there are too many millionaires and too many billionaires and too many white Rolls Royces. I mean, maybe um, that just needs containing. So that's the issue as far as I see it. Mm. No, absolutely. And then I guess more recently, um, the big question around uh, Chinese real estate there's also with Evergrande has uh, obviously cropped up as well. And uh, many are calling it the China Lehman moment. Yeah, exactly. I think it's more a Japanese type of moment. So the way Japan sort of got out of its asset, not just property, boom, and then bust, was essentially a long number of years of obfuscation. And... You know, I always use the example that, well, if your interest costs are 0%, it's fairly in easy to maintain your interest payments on your debt because debt servicing is pretty low at low rates. And um, uh, it's the amend, extend, sort of pretend type of approach to the bursting of a real estate bubble. I, th I think this is going to be more like that. But in a sense, that compounds the problems because what you need for a market to become truly investable um, is transparency and openness and clarity and certainty of contract and so on. And I think a lot of what we've seen in China, from my point of view, really brings that into question. So although China might be a cheap equity market, you know, it's a standard point. It's cheap for a reason. Mm. No, exactly. I think the other... Um, comment i'd kind of make along this is that and i think this is the big debate certainly we're having within efg is is um uh, the conventional wisdom is that the chinese typical chinese saver individual has two forms of investment one is cash and the second one is real estate uh, they don't really invest too much in the equity market or or even fixed income or any of those types of products the question is 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 are they going to graduate given that real estate is now a more suspect asset class, yep. whether whether we start to see that huge savings pool um, moving into those um, other asset classes. And and, uh, so, and that's the big question. You know, that, I guess that's the bull argument for why the stock market could do very well in the future. Um, and, uh, um, and I guess that's the one we just need to kind of keep on watching. Um, and, I, and I do find it quite interesting... This also coincides now with the new system Wealth Connect that is that's just been launched, um, where uh, savers in China can start investing in products uh, outside with a fixed quota. Actually, not a lot of money actually at the moment, but you could fully expect that this kind of control mechanism of international investment will will start to kick off. Yeah, and I mean, I think the other thing about China is that it's still growing. Yeah, I mean, it's true. still growing yeah. in real terms. Yeah. It's still yeah. got some inflation. I mean, normal growth is going to be way, way higher, yeah. almost certainly, than we've seen in any, any other economy. So there is an element of being able to grow out of your difficulties. But then when I see the sort of house price income ratios in Shanghai and Beijing and the house price rent ratios, they are really at much higher levels mm. than we mm. saw even in mm. the US real estate mm. boom. So that that's the worry, I think. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Hopefully, gradualism <laughs> prevails. Uh, so the other points we talked about is uh, infrastructure. Obviously, we've got we've kind of put another little green tinge to this next section, um, and obviously, uh, 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 hat tip to uh, to COP twenty six that is uh, is going to be around. Um, and how are we looking at from an emerging economies perspective? I mean, the numbers. Um, I was in a World Bank. Not listening to a World Bank presentation <laughs> the other day, and the numbers from Anderson Silver, uh, who's just updated these numbers, are truly eye-watering. Uh, so pre-pandemic, they thought the emerging markets would need to invest $3 trillion a year to meet climate change uh, and sustainable development goal targets. And because they haven't really invested very much during the pandemic, it, it's sort of higher than that uh, now, sort of three and a half trillion a year. And then I listened to Mark Carney on his Bloomberg interview recently. He says, well, 
for the sustainable energy infrastructure, we need, and he said, well, it was not exactly as precise as you would hope. He said, one and a half or two or two and a half trillion <laughs> uh, per year just for the energy infrastructure. Mm. Now, add those two very big numbers together and you get something that amounts to five or six percent of GDPs, which is an astonishing demand. So if we're serious about sustainable development goals and sort of climate change, that is a massive amount of spending that is needed. And, you know, who's going to pay for it? I mean, we've spent 16 trillion on the COVID response. So in that context, hey, might not be all that much. Um, but there's got to be a huge determination to do that. That's why I think when people talk about stagflation or stagnation, if that's at all true, it's certainly not the prospect we face. Mm-hmm. And I think also, ultimately, with all these things, one would have thought that um, the productivity would also go hand in hand with that kind of spending. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so, uh, indeed, could we be even entering an even more golden age than we've had <laughs> over the last um, you know, ten, 10 years in terms of stock markets? Now, we, uh, we talk a little bit about... Um, um, freight rates and um, and some of the things challenges we have at the moment. Maybe give us a little bit of an inkling of what we're thinking here. Well, it's, well, it's how temporary these things turn out to be. I mean, we put a chart of freight rates going up tenfold and then coming down according to the futures market. But, uh, well, for the time being, a lot of those sort of higher costs seem to be more elevated than anyone sort of expected. Um, so it remains to be seen but uh, I think generally we're uh, on the side of agreeing with policymakers that these things will be to a large extent sort of temporary although maybe not getting all the way back down to sort of 2% or so Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you you know with stagflation the other element of the stagflation stagnation I don't think so because there's Mm. so much infrastructure spending Mm. Um, but the inflation aspect of it I think this is really very different to the stagflation of the 1970s because then inflation got out of control. I was looking at the UK in the 1970s and when money growth went above 20% and inflation headed to 25%, the main policy debate at the Bank of England was whether or not we should raise rates from 5% to 6%. Okay, that's not the world we're living in now. Mm. So the monetary policy is way ahead of all of that, I think. Mm. Absolutely. So we end the overview on a bit of a bullish note. Um, and we talk about corporate profitability, uh, profit margins. Um, there's a, you know, um, uh, a graph, um, uh, number five, uh, which is, you know, quite interesting uh, in terms of kind of margins and mid-cycle margins and, and obviously recessionary margins. Um, but the overall trend continues to look pretty, pretty strong. And I guess the the point that we make here a little bit is that, you know, are analysts underestimating the true potential? Yeah, I mean, this was your point to look at. And when I looked at the numbers for figure five, I must admit I was a bit surprised that profit margins had risen so much post-COVID. In fact, you know, they're really only temporarily sort of low and look sort of pretty resilient at this new sort of higher level. So that's got to be an encouraging sign. I think Mose, I think this is a point you've made as well. If we're living in a world where new technology is necessary, whether it be for an electric vehicle or sort of, you know, new computer or new software or whatever, people just have to pay up for it. And mm. uh, companies are able to make sort of higher profits out of those. I know you've used the example of Tesla being sort of a more profitable sort of business than a traditional sort of car business, but you can do it almost sector by sector, mm, and mm, mm. profitability looks good. Well, it certainly does, um, and uh, certainly uh, looking at the financial markets today, at least, um, but if a steep recovery from a, a, a September seasonal pause. Um, certainly. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Paul, for that overview. I think uh, some really interesting topics, and uh, certainly uh, lots of uh, ammunition for us to uh, chew over over the coming uh, months and quarters uh, so the next section is really on asset market performance it's already happened so i won't spend too much time on this and uh, i'll bring in daniel uh to talk uh, to to talk a little bit about the the us and um and uh, i guess cross currents on uh consumption 
fiscal policy and then uh, inflation. But let's, let's tackle the, the consumption theme at the moment and savings rates in particular. Yeah, obviously uh, consumption really important for the US economy makes up around 70% of the total. So once with consumption really drives the US economy. And I think the overall view remains pretty good because savings rates have have shot up quite sharply over the past 18 months. But at the same time, we think there's reasons to believe that those savings rates, while they'll be supportive, they're not going to come down really quickly. Um, so if we think about it, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty in the world. There's still uncertainty over what the shape of the, the post-COVID world will look like and, and the nature of job security. So for that reason, it's perfectly reasonable to expect um, uh, individuals to retain some share of this earnings uh, if for uh, precautionary measures. I think it's one thing to bear in mind. I think uh, it's also worth bearing in mind, of course, that whilst there's a large pool of savings, there's also uh, quite a lot of debt out there. And so some of uh, this pool of savings we expect to be used to help reduce that big debt pile. And I think the, uh, the, the third point to note is that, of course, COVID, you know, thankfully we're, we're coming towards w- hopefully will be the the end of situation, the emergency situation associated with COVID. But nonetheless, uh, behaviours, some of them will have changed more permanently. So I think it's perfectly natural to expect individuals to be more cautious about spending money on certain parts of the service sectors, be more cautious, for example, of going to restaurants or going to crowded areas. And I'm sure this will alleviate over time, but it does suggest when you put these three factors together, that actually, uh, you know, whilst savings will be supportive, they won't perhaps come down uh, all that quickly. The um, next point we bring about uh, on, um, on on graph uh, 11 is around the fiscal policy and, and GDP growth and, and its impact. Obviously, as we move forward into 2022 uh, and even latter half of, of, of uh, or the fourth quarter of this year, we're starting to see the impacts of fiscal stimulus starting to to wear off and uh, and uh, it's only in the UK um, I know you've very nicely moved to Switzerland in just in time but uh, you know in the UK the the, the fiscal burden is starting to go into reverse so what's your um, uh, you know I guess what's the assessment of that what impact it might have on GDP um, uh, you know going forward yeah, look, I mean, I mean, clearly there was a huge and unusual amount of stimulus that was applied during the uh, the COVID crisis, and, and that was appropriate. But it's unreasonable to expect governments to sustain such a huge amount of stimulus indefinitely. And um, whilst you know we expect governments to be cautious, it, it, it's natural to expect the size of that stimulus to fade over time. And that just means that the uh, the fiscal impetus is is going to be negative. So from, even though it will still be um, um, there'll still be a large amount of stimulus. The fact that it'll be less than last year means that there's going to be a little bit of a drag from the fiscal side of things. But of course, that will be offset to some extent by an increase in activity in the private sector. So it swings and roundabouts to some extent. Um, but uh, nonetheless, there, there will naturally be uh, less of a fiscal impulse as uh, the private sector activity picks up. The last point we make here is uh, watching the paint dry again, <laughs> which... Uh, which uh, you know certainly was a pastime we did a lot uh, throughout uh, uh, the uh, I guess the 2010s. Uh, um, any sort of uh, deja vu appearing again? Yeah, the um, you know context is always very interesting, uh, and the the perception of uh, of these things. So there's lots of interest in the market at the moment, clearly about the Fed, and people are getting very excited about the prospect of Fed tapering and, and rate hikes. But the truth is that. Uh, the um, expected pace of uh, the withdrawal of asset purchases and the expected pace of rate hikes thereafter is glacial. It's incredibly slow. Policy is going to remain uh, incredibly stimulative in an absolute sense for a very long period of time. And, uh, you know, in some respects, it's similar to the moment, uh, uh, as you noted, in 2017 when Yellen uh, described the gradual approach to Fed tightening that was on the cards then as uh, like watching paint dry. So let's see if that happens. But I think, you know, the Fed quite rightly has been very careful to signal that uh, its current emergency stimulus stance is going to come to an end. And I think, I think that's right. But, uh, you know, we also need to get this in context and it's, it, you know, reverse of stimulus and eventually rate hikes is going to come about very, very slowly. Now, 
Uh, one area that might come a bit faster <laughs> is obviously the United Kingdom. So uh, let's um, um, let's uh, cross the pond and uh, look into the into the UK. So obviously we've got kind of challenges in the labour market. I think uh, uh, actually Figure Thirteen actually describes that actually really well. Um, um, thoughts on that, and obviously wages and prices. I, I think futures are even calling for a rate hike in the UK this year. Um, and uh, obviously that's a, a probably a super fast development you know I, I guess I, I would personally caution that uh, that it will happen this year but certainly we're talking a matter of months now rather than you know maybe six months ago we were talking about you know 2022 late 22 or even 23 years rate hikes yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly the, the most obvious example of um, of labour market shortages at the moment is with regard to fuel and the, uh, the queues that you see on the news uh, for the... Uh, you know, coming out of the, uh, the the fuel station simply because there aren't enough fuel tanker drivers to to make the deliveries. The fuel is there, but it just uh, uh, you know these companies are unable to get it to at points of sale. So that that's the most obvious way. But there's you know shortages elsewhere, as we noticed in the report. Shortages for food delivery drivers, uh, shortages in the hospitality sector, shortages in the healthcare sector, shortages at border control, leading to long delays at airports. So lots of labour market shortages. And actually, this is evident in the the macro data where uh, there's now over a million unfilled vacancies, which I think is at an all-time high. It's, it's really phenomenal. Now, of course, you know, long-term is a good thing, but it does suggest that in the short term, there are some frictions in labor markets. This, in turn, is leading to rising wages. So we've got this mismatch between you know, the, the jobs that people are qualified and want to do and the, uh, uh, the, the jobs that need to be filled. But of course, over time, that, that will resolve. And one of the mechanisms for resolving it is, uh, is higher wages. And, uh, you know, those higher wages naturally part of this story that anyway is being exacerbated perhaps by Brexit and, um, and you know, the, the strains in relationship with the EU there um, and feeding through into inflation more broadly. So Bank of England now expects inflation to be upwards of 4% by the end of this year. That's clearly quite a long way above target. The bank does, of course, expect that to fade, but actually it's already had to revise up its expectations this year and i think you know there, there's a strong likelihood that the bank of england will be uh, uh you know probably the first major central bank to hike rates so uh, certainly something to keep an eye on there but absent you know a, a sudden uh, sharp and unexpected shift down in inflation which you know, looks very unlikely from here it looks like the bank of england is uh, is probably going to be the, one of the first yeah i think that's uh Certainly our view, I think what surprised me, certainly in the last few weeks, is that uh, you know the pound has been weaker rather than stronger with higher rate expectations. And, um, you know, obviously that's quite puzzling because that's not what you expect, certainly in the last, uh, you know, the last few years, but you haven't seen that. And uh, I just wonder, and I guess it's still very early days to make any investment conclusion on that, but, you know, I do wonder whether there's markets are starting to give a signal that uh, they're not necessarily happy with with, uh, with policy um, uh, in the UK. And uh, that's certainly something we'll, we'll have to watch uh, very carefully. And on the last chart there, we have talked about the UK tax burden. Obviously, we talked about the national insurance uh, increases um, and, uh, you know, that doesn't look particularly constructive, does it? No, I think this is, you know, part of the reason why the market has been a bit more cautious on sterling is that actually whilst the UK is, um, you know, has been one of, uh, it's probably one of the countries that will be the first to hike rates. Also, it's one of the countries first to engage in active fiscal consolidation by means of higher taxes. So national insurance contributions have gone up and, uh, you know, the tax burden is going to be the highest since the 1950s. Uh, very unusual for a conservative government. Um, and uh, but you know this clearly will act as a break on on growth in the uh, in the months and years ahead if it's sustained. So uh, certainly something to watch. I, th- I think it's worth mentioning though that context of uh, you know weaker sterling and uh, investor sentiment that's been negatively dispositioned towards the UK. Actually, the, the equity market looks okay. It's quite cheap. It does tend to respond well. To, um, to weaker sterling um, and uh, you know we've seen uh, a sharp increase in foreign interest in uh, in buying UK companies recently so I think uh, actually UK market look, looks very interesting. Mm. 
That is actually uh, quite fascinating. Certainly we saw it was quite defensive over the last few weeks in September when we did have a bit of um, uh, September and, and early October when we had a bit of a dip with the pound dropping, the UK stock market did show some outperformance. Um, so thanks, Daniel. So we'll, we'll um, uh, cross the channel now to the Eurozone. And, um, uh, and uh, Gianluigi, um, we, we talk about um, a slower recovery in Europe compared to uh, the rest of the uh, more advanced uh, economies. And uh, we highlight um, three factors. Yes, indeed. Uh, the, the, the slower than other areas of recovery seen in the Eurozone can be referred to, to three uh, issues that have affected the Eurozone economy. One is uh, fully exogenous, uh, which is linked to the bottlenecks in the supply chain and uh, being uh, the Eurozone more reliant than the US, for instance, on uh, manufacturing than services, uh, at least relatively speaking, uh, that affected more uh, the Eurozone economy than, than it did in, uh, in the U.S. And uh, that is uh, well uh, uh, captured by surveys across, uh, among uh, companies, which uh, report that uh, the lack of equipment and inputs for the um, um, production process is what is uh, really constraining their activity nowadays, much more than, uh, say, lack of demand. Actually, demand is often at an historical high, but uh, the difficulty for companies is to deliver to meet that, uh, that demand. And uh, uh, with the expectation that these uh, bottlenecks will persist for a few more months, uh, there is a chance that also uh, the, the latter part of the year will be somewhat weaker than currently envisaged. Uh, the flip side of the coin, hopefully a positive one, is that uh, sooner or later these bottlenecks will be overcome. And so this production will be uh, fulfilled and demand will be fulfilled. And that can easily mean that uh, at the end of the day, next year growth would be somewhat more satisfactory than is currently uh, expected. Uh, on balance, uh, things should kind of uh, compensate each other, but uh, the, the trajectory of growth will probably be somewhat more uh, you know, uh, bumpy than uh, than would have uh, otherwise been the case. The other two factors are, are definitely more endogenous and are policy related. Uh, on the one hand, the fiscal policy was a bit uh, less uh, expansionary than uh, again than when comparing that to the US or UK too. Uh, although it was quite aggressive by European standard, that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, also in terms of uh, uh, timeliness of response, that was much better than was feared at the beginning of, of the pandemic. Nonetheless, the, the fiscal push was uh, clearly less, uh, less uh, uh, meaningful than, than elsewhere. And uh, the other third, uh, say, reason is uh, a monetary policy, which was also less uh, aggressive, um, uh, also at times was a bit more hesitant, uh, some uh, mishaps uh, in terms of communication at the beginning of the, of the crisis. Uh, but uh, the, the real reason for the less, um, say, impetus given from uh, monetary policy to use on economy is the composition of uh, savings, the allocation of savings of the uh, US on private sector, which is much less geared uh, onto equities uh, than uh, than in the U.S. So uh, eventually, the uh, transmission uh, through which the quantitative easing worked, which was the only uh, monetary policy tool left to the ECB as much as uh, it was for the Fed, uh, is much more effective in the U.S., where uh, household savings are much more enhanced wealth are much more sensitive to, to equities. Uh, add to that that uh, also possibly the uh, you know uh, propensity to spend of eurozone households out of any increase in, in wealth is uh, somewhat less than, than elsewhere. Uh, that, of course, caused uh, consumption to be somewhat weaker, even when it was possible to spend, because, of course, for a long time, no, no, many months, we were not allowed to spend <laughs> in any case. So eventually, the, the, the no, domestic demand component was, was somewhat weaker. At the same time, um, that also means, uh, and this is, has been this has been always true, uh, the Eurozone economy is normally uh, a bit more, say, stable in terms of performance. So it grows less, but also often falls less uh, in terms of crisis. Mm. And we uh, summed that up very nicely in a, the chart uh, 
wealthy and frugal, European households, wealthy and frugal, um, which is uh, which is obviously very very interesting. Now the last point we ha- we we touch upon certainly in Europe is the ladies not for tapering. Uh, maybe you can uh, elucidate. Yeah, uh, that uh, uh, to some extent is a, is a bit of an obsession from the ECB not to be seen as uh, uh, you know mimicking what uh, the Fed does, also in terms of uh, language. But uh, when it comes to the meaning of, of the policy actions, uh, we can debate if it is important to be seen as tapering or simply reducing progressively and uh, on a kind of a pre or pre almost preset base uh, um, uh, the, the, the monetary policy stimulus, which is exactly what the ECB is doing. They have been uh, calibrating, as they say, uh, the pace of purchases, uh, adding uh, to purchases during time of stress and easing uh, with the latest policy decision for the last three months of the year. And that is also seen as a you know, first step towards uh, ending the, the pandemic uh, emergency asset purchases, the, the, it's called PEP, which is due to end by the end of, of March next year. Ms. Lagarde, Ms. Lagarde said that there would be news on that at the December press conference, and uh, the expectation is that the news will be that the program will be terminated as planned. That, of course, doesn't mean that uh, asset purchases will will, st- uh, will end. Actually, they will continue, and they will probably continue for quite some time because with the new ECB strategy review, um, which was announced in, in July, uh, well, the ECB indeed has more room for staying uh, accommodated for longer, and given that so far they linked the uh, termination of asset purchases to uh, basically the timing of the first rate increase, that indeed seems quite uh, uh, some, you know, quite distant in time, possibly not before 2023. Mm, absolutely. So now crossing over the Alps into Switzerland, um, and uh, we we really sort of uh, focus on some of the bottlenecks that have been created in, in terms of um, Swiss manufacturing production. And um, inflation, probably the only place in the world where inflation is... Um, is at the low end of the target, um, which uh, which always reminds me that uh, you know uh, Japan and indeed Switzerland could deal could do quite well with a bit of inflation, but um, let's uh, let's touch upon the uh, bottlenecks first. Yeah, uh, the, the bottlenecks that uh, are affecting the, the Swiss economy are similar in, in nature and probably also in terms of uh, causes and consequences to what is happening to the Eurozone uh, economy. The manufacturing sector of Switzerland is very much integrated with that of the Eurozone, particularly Germany, unsurprisingly, I would say. So uh, the the issue are basically the same. Uh, Possibly the the degree of uh, uh, bottlenecks and uh, the impact on activity reported by Swiss companies is a bit uh, if, if, if possible, more severe than, than in the Eurozone. But uh, that's it. And uh, as I said before, for the Eurozone, that will probably be, mean that uh, the recovery trajectory will be a bit more bumpy, but not, uh, not uh, broken, if you want. Uh, and in fact, the, if there is one uh, surprise from the, the Swiss economy, which the, the, the Swiss National Bank uh, promptly acknowledged, is that uh, in the GDP reco- recovered, pre-pandemic levels already in Q3 of this year, in Q2 of this year, sorry, which is uh, probably uh, at least one quarter, if not two quarters, ahead of what was expected at the beginning of the year. Uh, having said that, uh, the issue for the Swiss economy indeed remains the low inflation, which can be seen a bit uh, as, a, as a winner's curse. Uh, that you, uh, Someone w- would claim, and definitely the SMB does so, that is uh, reflective of uh, its credibility. Uh, others can say that maybe it's a bit of a problem because uh, indeed uh, having having had deflation for a good part of the last 10 years also meant that uh, there is always a pressure for the Swiss franc to appreciate, uh, to compensate for uh, what otherwise would be a real depreciation. And that uh, dampens uh, inflation uh, because of uh, lower imported prices and uh, being a small open economy that is a meaningful chunk of the overall CPI basket. And that, at the end of the day, complicates life for the SMB itself. So, indeed, a bit more relaxation, uh, if you want, of the 
inflation target, which is defined at a lower level than the ECB, uh, will probably help uh, over the medium term uh, also the SMB in doing its job. Mm, absolutely, I think, um, and we uh, we have a also was wrote nice uh, charts there on the inflation rates, target ranges, uh, as well as the uh, interbank rates. Um, so we will certainly watch that um, very clear, carefully. So, generally, uh, thank you very much. So, moving on to Asia, which I will cover, and we do a bit of a deeper dive on the property sector and some very, very interesting statistics uh, that we put together. Uh, the first is that um, home ownership in China um, is around ninety percent for uh, urban urban households. Uh, that's a two hundred seventy six million households. A very, very high ownership uh, within the um, uh, within urban environment and that compares with 65 percent in the u.s it just shows you how important property ownership is for uh, for for the chinese and um uh, the second then is just paul and i discussed a little bit earlier is the ownership of those investment assets and uh, because the because the lack of investment alternatives for um, you know for Chinese households, um, the wealth uh, roughly seventy eight percent is in is in real estate. So it's pretty uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And again, that compares with um, the the US of around thirty five percent, where they're able to own other investment assets. Uh, so it's certainly very interesting to um, to just kind of see the differences there. Now, all of this basically means that, um, um, and you know, we cite a uh, Rogoff and Yang um, a paper um, from um, from last year, which uh, just highlighted that um, you know, um, and it's a question we get asked quite a bit: is how much is of GDP is real estate um, uh, in in China? And you know how big is it? And the number that uh, Yang and Rov came up to was twenty eight point seven percent. This is as of two thousand sixteen, probably a little bit lower given the real estate its construction spending has been a lot lower over that period, or certainly over the last four or five years. Um, and that is you know compares to Spain pre the eurozone crisis. So uh, slightly frightening, I would say, in terms of the the aggregate number. But um, on on um, you know. Graphs 22 and 23 actually just show that a lot of kind of credit growth has already started to diminish. In fact, one could argue that uh, the reason why these property companies have gone bust or have found financial difficulties is that the 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 government's probably been too tight in terms of policy, uh, you know, during the COVID crisis and post the COVID um, um, pandemic crisis. So uh, that's probably suggest to us or certainly has suggested to us that you know uh, uh, interest rate uh, cuts in China are probably inevitable to try and um, stave off uh, this uh, from kind of further deterioration and uh, obviously the caps on construction spending uh, around real estate on, on on slide 23 are also very interesting to show that the Chinese are already knew this was a problem beforehand and and tried to sort of curb it. So this kind of gradual gradualism is probably the way that we come out of it. And I think, Paul, your comments on Japan are probably quite apt at, at this point that, uh, you know, they need to engineer this shift, um, both in terms of how Chinese invest and into more wider product sets um, and uh, getting out of the real estate now as a result of china which has overshadowed the asia investment climate over the course of the last decade uh, or 20 years even you know uh, we we try to sort of um uh, highlight india as coming out of china's shadow and certainly i think it's something that we will write about a lot going forward is the uh, you know strong areas of of um um IPO markets in in India that are coming out that cover e-commerce and online food delivery and air tech, gaming and uh, software as a service that we haven't really heard too much about with respect to India. And many of these IPOs will be coming out over the coming um, months and quarters, which will probably change the shape of the of the stock market as well, given the size uh, that these companies are coming out with. So and it just just 
reminiscent reminiscent of you know the 2014 and 13 and 14 environment in China when we first started to have Tencent and Alibaba and all these companies starting to get listed and we saw this huge bull bull run in some of these companies from you know 14 till actually 2020 or late 2020 uh and early 21. Uh, and so we feel quite um, excited about the prospect uh, going forward, certainly in, from an India perspective. Expect more from us on this going forward. And then the last point we make is obviously in Japan, and this really important point of how Japanese companies are very sensitive to global conditions and some of the um, um, advance, say, depreciation they use uh, that obviously means that uh, you know profit margins suddenly become on steroids whenever the economy starts to improve, uh, and that's there's a great chart in there just showing how how quickly this thing can change um, um, when economic conditions uh, improve. So uh, we're now going to flip right across the continents to Latin America and to um, Joaquin, and you know I have to say I'm um, given the emerging market selling this year. And last year, and in fact, one could argue for the last five years, haven't done so well. I have to say, I'm personally warming up to the prospect of emerging markets in 2022. Um, and uh, we touch upon what we call a welcome rebound. So maybe, Joaquin, you could you know, uh, tell us what a welcome rebound would look like. Yeah, so I think it, it would be a bit of a, of a combination of different things. One is the... Um, the recovery of, of economic growth uh, globally, and that has clearly helped um, some of the Latin American economies, given how export-oriented they uh, they are. Um, clearly, commodity prices uh, rising have also uh, contributed to this. But also, there's um, we're starting to get to the end of this very long political cycle in in the region, where we've seen a lot of uh, of the main economies there being. Uh, Going through uh, election processes and, and, and big changes uh, during the during these last eighteen months, um, and this is going to finish probably next year with, with the elections in Brazil, which are very important but also quite unpredictable. But within within this, um, and going to to your point on on, on maybe the, the the welcome rebound, uh, we've seen um, economies such as um, as Peru and, and Chile which are probably going to grow a little bit more than what is expected by, by the IMF. Um, the region itself is going to grow around probably around 6% by the end of, of this year. And then both Chile and Peru will going to go something around um, 8 to, to 10% um, this year, which is definitely very welcome news. Um, again, the, the policy prospect in, in Peru has recently been quite uh, disrupted by the by the election of uh, of, of a new president um, quite a divisive figure but with le- very little support given how fragmented the political scene is there in Peru and yesterday for example the the um, uh, the, the president uh, changed seven of its ministers so pretty much half of his cabinet has, has been uh, forced to resign including his uh, his chief of staff uh, however this change was actually in favor of governability going forward, and uh, therefore showing a significant change toward more moderation um, in in the policies going forward, and I think that is uh, an acknowledgement from the from the government that they need to send a clear signal to the rest of the world that Peru is not an isolated economy. They need uh, commerce with the world. They need foreign investment. They need to to continue to trade. With uh, with the world, especially given how important the mining sector is for them, and this is, uh, but very clear signal there was the um, the ratification of the president of the central bank, the independence of the central bank in in Peru, um, and how um, open has been the the current finance minister, which was also ratified yesterday, uh, about three main points. First, deficit reduction. Like clearly, the pandemic left. Um, uh, also created a big dent to, to Peru's finances uh, and they have a very clear path to try to get to um, uh, a deficit of 1% of GDP um, in, the, in the next three to four years. Um, a tax reform, which they want to start uh, submitting to, to Congress before the end of this year. And also an infrastructure plan, which is going to involve over 50 projects which combine both 
public and, and private investment. So clearly, in order to, for these three things to succeed, you're going to need to send the right signals. And clearly, Peru is, is in the in the way for for doing that. So it will be interesting to see whether they can they can continue to, with this with these reforms and continue to to improve despite the political noise um, and join some of the other um, uh, higher middle income countries of uh, of the region. Um, clearly, uh, Peru, Peru is trying to follow the the steps of its its other neighbor, Chile. And your hometown, Uruguay. No, and Uruguay <laughs> as well as some of the other yeah, the other countries I'll, that have grown. I was gonna say, I said town, but maybe it should be country. Country, <laughs> but yes. looks like a town. It, <laughs> yeah, small. We, are, we are like a like a small province. Yeah. Of, of, um, well, that definitely sounds a lot more optimistic than what we expected when Castillo first um, was running into power, if you like. And, uh, and I think people were taking very much the worst case scenario. But uh, you're painting a, quite an optimistic um, uh, picture, mm-hmm. which is um, probably surprises and confounds quite a lot of people. No, yes, that's right. Um, I think it even surprised me um just having this conversation with the, with the finance minister listening to what he was saying i was positively surprised to hear uh, some of these things um clearly the acknowledgement that uh, they they need the rest of the of the political class in peru to to support this and they have to do it through through the orthodox policies mm. Mm. <laughs> absolutely so um what the i, I Quite enjoyed uh, slide uh, 27 or picture to a graph 27 mm-hmm. where it had um, all the Latin American countries in the middle income trap, mm-hmm. which I think was actually quite instructive. But it just shows your, your you know, Uruguay is up there mm-hmm. as, a, as a place to be. But Chile is not far away. And uh, I have to say, I'm quite surprised at Costa Rica and Panama because, yeah. you know, that they, I would have, th- well, I guess Panama, to be honest, is a bit of a financial center. So maybe, right. you know, I, I, that, that that would be expected, but Costa Rica is actually a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, Costa Rica is one of those places that you normally don't hear about it unless you're talking about tourism, and it's one of those one of the greenest countries in in the world. They mm-hmm. have a uh, they have been one of the pioneers in implementing environmental friendly policies. Um, Eco tourism is a huge thing. <laughs> correct. Yes, but also you know very controlled. Um, uh, type of, of spending, also very orthodox policies of, of opening up to the rest of the world. It's one of the countries that doesn't have um, its own army. Mm. It's uh, it's not a, 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 it's, it's a big expense for a lot of countries and they just realize they, 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 they don't need that. And so, you know, it's, it's a way to, to, to manage some of public finances in a, in a, that works for a small country with low resources and high problems with geographical location. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, it, but still, it's a small country with high middle-income um, uh, earnings. Yeah, well, certainly one of the more fascinating um, uh, charts in in the pack this time round. Um, so we then uh, end now on the special focus and uh, the inequality and uh, bond yield. So this is a topic uh, I know, Paul. We've been talking about for some years now, at least three or four <laughs> years of this you know uh, divide between rich and poor and um and uh you know what it kind of all means um uh, for for investors um ultimately because it's really hard to really put it down to but you, you you've tried to bring it together yeah and um very much thanks to stefan gelak who um actually is not with us today but he pointed out this uh, pointed us to this paper that was uh, put out at the Jackson Hole Symposium, linking inequality and low real interest rates. And it is a fascinating story because, as you say, we know inequality has risen, and we've got a chart on the US showing it's as high as it was in the 1920s. But also inequality has risen in other countries as well. And at the same time, for a long time, we'd had very low real interest rates. Now, I've got a couple of measures there, but perhaps the one most people are familiar with is the yield on TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, which has been nothing, plus or minus 1%, for a decade. So why has it been so low? And there have been two main explanations. One, a global savings glut, the Ben Bernanke explanation, and two, a demographic explanation that, you know, 
populations are slowing down in terms of the growth rates and they're aging and so older people tend to save more and that actually puts downward pressure on real interest rates. The new argument actually links low real rates to inequality by saying that actually it's not just an aging population and a slowing population growth but it's because the higher inequality there's more money to Obviously, the, the richer and the richer tend to save an awful lot more. So their saving rate is something like, well, 20%, according to these studies. And, well, the bottom 50% in the US savings rate is, well, there's hardly any savings. So the rich save a lot, and the rich save a lot, and that puts downward pressure on real interest rates. And it's that factor which is... Uh, most important in uh, driving this recent trend in lower real interest rates. And I think that's an absolutely fascinating linking of these two things that have been a bit of a mystery about the sort of world financial markets. Why are real interest rates really so low? And why is inequality rising so much? Well, this says, well, the two are inextricably linked. Mm. And if you take that argument to its conclusion, then we only get out of this very low real interest rate situation if there's some change in inequality. And, well, despite sort of the efforts to tackle that, I think you'd have to be very brave to forecast a big reversal in that trend Mm -hmm. over the next decade or so. So I don't know, my conclusion from that is real interest rates look as though they're here to stay Mm. at very, very low levels. Mm. And we've sort of got to get used to it. We have sort of got used to it, but it doesn't look as though it's going to change anytime soon. Mm. No, absolutely. I, I, you know, I when I looked at the chart, uh, this is the chart thirty, and the first thing that kind of came to my mind is this is a demographic situation because you know, um, uh, you know, I guess as you're older, you usually have more money than you did when you were younger. That's true, um, and you're more likely to save it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but this is showing it's inequality itself rather than just that aging yeah, that is yeah. more important. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, and and the. You know the last chart in the pack is the uh, the top ten percent share of total income, and um, I guess no surprises. You can't always expect you know China and and um, and the emerging markets really to have that sort of divide. Well, there was one problem with that chart. I was putting it together, and I'd got the Indian data, and they're so far above all the others, <laughs> it wouldn't plot on the chart ah, okay. without distorting the axis. So, yeah. uh, uh, India is a special, in a special, special, case, in a special yeah. position yeah. As, far, as far as that's yeah. concerned, which is interesting in itself. Yeah, yeah, Int- very, very interesting, very interesting. Um, well, Paul, thank you very much for that. That was uh, an, again a very interesting pack. I have to say that. Um, um, you know, going through it with with you all was absolutely fascinating, and I think the content was just absolutely superb. Uh, so, really, congratulations to to you all for putting to this together. Um, as I said, I found myself sort of going through this and saying, "Well, I, I need to check that. I need to look at that. I need to look at that." There's at least you know twenty or thirty different thoughts and ideas that came from the pack. So, uh, again. Congrats. I, I thought there was an excellent uh, insight. Uh, so with that, um, thank you all for, for your participation. Um, and uh, thank you. And if you do have any questions or queries or any thoughts about uh, this insight or any of the previous insight documents, as uh, so we collectively put a lot of effort and thought into this. And, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, we have a, a meeting beforehand to kind of plan this document. And I have to say it's... Uh, one of, the, one of the most special meetings I look forward to every quarter um, and, uh, and uh, hopefully you find that output uh, especially interesting. So thank, thank you very much all and um, as I said uh, please listen in to future podcasts and for, the, for some of you we will uh, speak again next week. Thank you. Thank you.